Well, as Peter mentioned, this Sunday begins our Missions Emphasis Week. Missions is an emphasis around here all year round, but we do take a week and a year to give some extra attention to missions, much like we might do with the resurrection at Easter or thinking about Christ's birth at Christmas time. On a Missions Emphasis Sunday, year to year, we may at times have a guest speaker in. We might at other times have a special message from a passage that is not currently what we're studying together. We'll break from a series in order to think more specifically about missions. Or sometimes in God's providence, within our current series, our current study, or the book that we're looking at, we might happen upon a passage that is indeed useful for our focus of Missions Emphasis Week. Well, we've been in a study together over the last couple of months in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've been with us in this study, in this journey, you might be thinking right now, surely this is a good time to take a break from Ecclesiastes and to think about some passage somewhere, any passage, anywhere that's not in Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes doesn't seem to talk too much about the mission. If there's a mission of Ecclesiastes, by and large, it's a mission to try to figure out life and try to solve the desire for satisfaction. That's not exactly the mission that we're talking about, a mission's emphasis week. However, in God's providence, we actually come this morning to a section of Ecclesiastes that's quite fitting for mission's emphasis week, much to my surprise, despite my lack of foresight, despite my lack of good planning. Here we are. It's a great passage for mission's emphasis week. However, I'll have to presume upon your patience for a good bit. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes 10 and half of chapter 11, and it's that half of chapter 11 that gets us to some mission-minded themes, but we won't start there. We'll get there eventually. Let's begin by thinking about how many different kinds of people there are in this world. You might think of languages. You might think of countries or continents. You might divide this world up by even personality types or skin color or religion or age groups or income or political affiliations. My wife has a guilty pleasure in that song from the musical Rent, that one with the recurring big number, 525,600 minutes. You know the song? How do you measure, measure a year? In daylight, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee. Sing along if you'd like. In inches, in miles, in laughter, in strife. Or how about love? Seasons of love. Yes, there are many ways we could measure a year. Uh, but there are also many legitimate ways in which we might divide up people. And one way is to just simply say that there are two kinds of people. And there are only two paths that we will walk down in this life. The Bible talks about two eternal destinies, heaven and hell. There are those who follow Jesus and those who keep rejecting Jesus. There's no third way. There's no middle way. Everyone in this world is either tied to the kingdom of light or to 
the kingdom of darkness. As Led Zeppelin sang, there are two paths you can go by. And in the end, there might still be time to change the, the one you're on. Well, in the Old Testament books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, that twofold divide of humanity is worded like this, fools and wise. Our passage today from chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, verse 6, contrasts the fool and the wise. So before we even read our passage, let's do a quick overview of what these terms mean according to the Bible. The wise and wisdom versus the fool and folly. We've seen this contrast already in Ecclesiastes. In fact, just last week in chapter 9, we saw some examples of how wisdom is better than folly. But I think I should have done more to clarify those terms because they could be misunderstood. So let me do it this week. What is wisdom? What is wisdom in the Bible? Well, it's not just information and it's not just knowledge. Many have put it as the skill of living well. The skill of living well. Wisdom, as, wisdom is as wisdom does. Wisdom works. So it has to do with decisions and discernment and discretion and discipline. It even has to deal with delight according to chapter 9, which we saw last week. Wisdom is knowing how things work and then putting them to work. And this is all in relation to God. It's in submission to Him. It's under Him. It's before Him. And so it relates to salvation or redemption, what we call reconciliation with God. There is no truly wise person who is going at life alone without God and on their own. And so with the fool and with his folly, all that just gets turned upside down. It's inside out. Folly is ultimately a life detached from God. It is self-willed and self-focused. The, the fool is unteachable and proud. And hence... The fool is empty and frustrated. Now, we could rightly say that it's an oversimplification to speak of only two kinds of people in this world. It's true. Sometimes the wise act foolishly. Sometimes a fool gets it right or isn't as bad as he could have been. Some people are wiser than others. There are degrees. Some are more foolish than other fools. So there is a time to get more nuance. But books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes tend to put things in black and white categories. Two paths, two kinds of people. They word it this way in order that you might assess yourself plainly and simply. Not on a chart. Not in an option of one to ten. Two options. And they word it this way in order that you might decide today which one you'll be. Which one you'll live out. Who you'll be tomorrow. Who you'll be in 20 years. So which one are you? Which one have you been? Which one are you heading towards? Well, let's dig a little deeper with some new material then. 
Let's start with the fool in Ecclesiastes 10, and then we'll look at the wise in the first half of chapter 11. Let's read chapter 10 together. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt, the one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no one knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Well, chapter 10, we might label that the pains of the fool. Chapter 10 mentions wisdom and the wise a few times, but almost always in contrast to the fool, to the foolish. That's the direction. It's really an expose of the fool, starting with a metaphor in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Now, I don't know if any of you ladies have ever had a fly get into your perfume or one die there. Maybe if you did, you would say, it happened, it was weird, but it didn't start to stink. Well... We know what this means, even if we've never actually experienced it. We, we know by the second line, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The dead fly makes a big stink, so a little folly goes a long way. It creates a lot of trouble. It undoes a whole lot of wisdom and honor. You know this from famous scandals of politicians and preachers. There are certain names I could mention, and the first thing you'd think of is a scandal. One bad week in an otherwise pretty decent life, but that's what we remember. And here's where Ecclesiastes is actually more nuanced than that 
two kinds of people taxonomy. Sometimes it says here, the wise, the honorable, do just a little bit of foolishness, and it has a powerful and permanent, stinky effect. But then Ecclesiastes is right back to that black and white stuff of two kinds of people. In the next verse, verse 2, a man's heart inclines him to the right, the fool's heart to the left. With apologies to left-handed people here. The Bible often equates the right side of things as the right side of things. The correct side of things. And that's what it's saying here. Some have an inclination to the right. Some have an inclination to go astray. There's an inclination within, and then there's fruit that is apparent without. Verse 3, even when he walks on the road, the fool lacks sense. He says to everyone that he's a fool. He doesn't really say to everyone he's a fool, but it's on his lips. It's, it's like he's wearing a T-shirt. It says, I'm with stupid, and it's pointing up. The arrow is pointing at him. And everyone can see it but him. Then we have a section about rulers, verses 4 through 7. Leaders there. It says in verse 4, basically, if a king or, let's say, a boss in our context gets unreasonably angry at you, don't storm out in a huff. Stay there. Stay calm. It might get diffused. Like Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Verse 5, don't be surprised by errors of judgment, even with top officials. Folly reaches all the way to the top, even among kings. And wisdom can be found among the lowly. So don't look at power or possessions to figure out who's wise and who's foolish. Then we have a section, verses 8 through 11, talking about the ironic, unforeseen demise of the fool. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. Apparently he's digging a pit in order to trap someone and hurt them, and he falls in. It says, a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Presumably, this is someone trying to break in and steal. And on the other side of a wall, he's struck by a snake, and he dies. Trying to harm others, trying to break in and steal can turn into an ironic demise. There are YouTube clips aplenty on this of criminals being stupid and thwarting themselves. But it's not just for those kind of deliberate, evil-intending fools. Sometimes it just happens. Verse 9, he who queries, uh, queries stones is hurt by him, hurt by them. One splitting logs can be endangered by those logs. And then verses 12 to 14, we have a section on words. If you want to identify the fool and the wise... Look at their words. Do their words gain favor with others or cause trouble for others? Do they speak evil or, or well? Do they speak too much? Verse 14 says, a fool 
multiplies words and talks about things he knows not much about. Then verse 16 to 17 returns to the idea of rulers or leaders again, now this time contrasting two different kinds of kings. Verse 16, woe to the people who have a young king who parties first thing in the morning. That's not a good king. But verse 17, blessed are the people whose princes know when to feast and what feasting is for. Not for drunkenness, but for strength and joy. Verse 18 gives us a brief word about slothfulness or laziness. It says, through sloth, the roof sinks in. You see the power of this kind of foolishness? You see how sneaky it is? Isn't it something that, that doing nothing can have devastating effects? That's the sneaky danger of slothfulness. Verse 19 is a bright spot, returning to that common theme we've seen so many times in Ecclesiastes of bread and wine, the simple things around a family's table. The wise don't party first thing in the morning, but they do know that bread is for laughter and wine gladdens life. The wise are not slothful, but they do know that there's a time for bread and wine and laughter. Also in verse 19, there's this curious little phrase, money answers everything. Or it could be money is the answer to everything. And you probably scratch your head. That's because it's not the only thing that can be said about money. One thing that can be said about money is that it isn't the answer to everything. Or that sometimes more money is more problems. But another thing that can be said is that money does fix some things. Money will plug some holes. Money will get some things done. That's part of wisdom. Well, we need to move on. Ecclesiastes 10 shows us the pains of the foolish life. That foolishness is little, but powerful and stinky. It's no respecter of persons. It it affects and infects the lofty and the lowly. It often finds itself in ironic demise and painful difficulty. And it shows up on people's lips and at their tables. Much better is the way of the wise. So now we turn to chapter 11, what we might call the productivity of the wise. There's the pains of the fool, but here's the productivity of the wise in the first six verses of chapter 11. Let's read those verses. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, 
So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's start with that first phrase, cast your bread upon the water, which almost is, is enigmatic as the phrase at the beginning of chapter 10 about dead flies and oil. Casting your bread upon the water was apparently an old saying, now archaic, and hence not obvious to us. We have sayings like this in our own tongue. They make sense only to us because we've heard them used in context hundreds of times. But the words themselves are not immediately obvious. Like cat got your tongue, spilling the beans, biting the bullet, kicking the bucket, and I gave up after four. Now I'm sure you can Google the story behind these sayings, but you don't need to know the story behind these sayings in order to use them properly. And so it probably was with this saying, casting your bread upon the water. It was probably obvious to the very first readers of the book of Ecclesiastes, but not so much to us. And hence, there have been some different interpretations. Some have said this is referring to industry and business, especially merchants on ships and in the sea. Others have said this is just nonsense. This is a guy in despair who says, you know what, throw your bread in the water because he knows it's going to sink or be eaten up by the ducks. I instead think that this is referring to generosity. Here's why. There's a similar ancient Egyptian proverb that goes like this. Do a good deed and throw it in the water. When it dries, you will find it. There's also the context of Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread is one of the verbs or commands of the passage, but there are a few others, and they're related. You see in verse 2, give a portion. Or in verse 6, sow your seed. Withhold not your hand. This is a language of benevolence, of generosity, of giving. And of course, that doesn't just apply to financial giving, but any kind of loving sacrifice for others. We could think of the, the classic three T's, time, talents, and treasures. These are the things the Lord calls us to give, to sacrifice for others. They are kingdom investments. They, they happen in conversations, in prayers, in words of encouragement, maybe through giving regularly to a local church or supporting missionaries or telling a non-Christian what the gospel is. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, says, take those morsels and throw them out there. Get them out there. Do it liberally. Do it in such a way that it almost looks like you're just throwing it away senselessly, carelessly. There's risk involved. There's faith involved. Partly because of the rest of what verse 1 says. 
You're to cast your bread upon the water, for you will find it after many days. Blessing will return eventually. Again, we know it doesn't really work this way with bread and water. You, you throw it into the water, it gets waterlogged, it sinks. It doesn't come back to you. But this is a saying, it's a, it's a metaphor, it's a, it's a picture. And the principles proven all over the Bible, like in Proverbs 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. It's what God promised in Deuteronomy 15. You shall give to the poor freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to them. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. It's what Jesus talked about in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will fall on your lap. Or 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Where Paul told the Corinthians, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, these verses are not affirming the teachings of the prosperity preachers that you sometimes see on TV. When the biblical promises of blessing are limited to material blessings and money, well, some of the most blessed people in all of history, are cut out of the picture. So that can't be. Jesus was the most blessed ever. And he was poor and persecuted and crucified. The Apostle Paul was wise and he gave much and sacrificed, sacrificed much. And he sometimes was repaid with beatings and imprisonment and execution. It's also important to remember that when the Bible promises blessings in return, it doesn't always specify whether that will be in this life or the next. We know God will bless. We don't know how. We don't know when. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year. It could be in the age to come. Some passages tie the blessing to come squarely on that age to come. In Luke 14, Jesus teaches like this. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be, be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There it is, heaven. But having said all that, and having made clear, I hope, that the prosperity preachers on TV might use verses like this, but they misuse verses like this. Don't let a possible delay of blessings sour or soften your motivation to give and to be generous and to invest. 
just like the prosperity preachers who leave out parts of the Bible that don't fit their theology, so we too need to not leave out or apologize for or blush about these promises of reward in the Bible. Our God unblushingly dangles a carrot and says, Come! And if you don't like carrots, maybe think of something else. Maybe imagine carrots with a whole lot of ranch. He dangles that kind of carrot and he says, come, it's good. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Recall that Jim Elliott, that well-known missionary who was martyred by the Alca Indians in Ecuador, he famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We recently got to do a family vacation on a beach, on the ocean. And one evening, the kids and I were playing catch with a football on the beach. And at some point, without warning, I just grabbed the football and I, I threw it into the ocean. And I was 80% sure it was going to come back, right? That's usually how it works. And it did. It came back. And so I got it and I threw it 25 feet. Maybe it was 50. I don't know. I, I got a good arm, so it's probably really far out there. And, and then that one was a little bit more dramatic. It was a little less clear whether it was going to come back to us or not. At one point, we were yelling, Wilson! But it eventually came back. I don't know enough about tides to know whether this always happens. But we were two for two that night, and that was kind of fun. It was a little bit risky, but the ball came back. And if it didn't, I thought, oh, well, someone will get a ball, and we'll get another one. You know, that's not going to be our last football. We'll get another one. The Lord will provide another. Now, verse 2 here says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In Hebrew wisdom literature, seven is a number of completeness. So this is completeness plus one. It's like, it's like saying, give to the nth degree and one more. When I married into Sarah's family, it wasn't long before I heard her parents say, something I've heard them say many times since. They say, you can't outgive God. And that just got me thinking this week, remembering their saying, I hope someday my kids quote me well. I hope I leave with some sayings that aren't just jokes or silliness or movie quotes. I pray they will say something like that about me and things I've said. I'm thankful for Sarah's parents saying over and over, you can't outgive God. And notice the rationale for this in verse 2. Because you don't know when disaster will strike. If verse 1 argued you can give liberally because you'll also receive, verse 2 says you can give liberally because you don't know when disaster will strike. And that seems counterintuitive to most of us, I'm sure. We might think, isn't potential disaster reason to hold back, to not give, and to store up? Well, maybe there's a time for that, but 
this is not the teaching here. This says, give now while you can give. Give now because there may be a time when you can't give or can't give much. Give in light of potential and future disaster. Now in verses 3 and 4, the writer is going to get to this imagery of sowing and reaping, returning to that agricultural language again. But first he sets up in verse 3 some things you can know, some things you can observe. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. This is the water cycle. This is precipitation. It's how it works. You see clouds with darkness in them. Most of us can say, yeah, that looks like it's going to rain. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And you've got to smirk at that and think, well, that's a stupid saying, obviously. I mean, this is worse than the question of whether a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it. Does it actually make a noise? But it's actually just saying there's some things that we can't know. We don't always know when trees are going to fall, but we do know that when they fall, that's where they are. We don't know if they're going to fall to the north or to the south, but when they fall, that's where they are. It's gravity. Gravity. But there are some things that can't be known, according to verse 4, and the unknown can't lead us to paralysis, to be frozen with fear. Verse 4 says, He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. Picture a farmer who knows that it's best to place your seed on the ground when it's not really windy. And so he watches, but he watches too long. He keeps watching. Every cloud is a potential gust of wind. He stares at the clouds for days on end, wondering if the wind is going to kick up, and he never lays down seed. Well, he's a foolish farmer. If you don't sow, you don't reap. Yes, it's true, you don't know the weather. You might have your, your app, your weather app, your radar, but you don't ultimately know the weather. I think clouds might be implying rain, but you, you don't know. So get sowing. You don't know what God's up to. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. So don't sit still and don't sit on your hands. Get going. There's much in this world you don't know. Like wind and storms and babies. Verse 5 says you don't know how babies are made. Oh, I know that you know that they don't come from the stork and they don't come because you were holding hands. I, I know you kind of know how babies are made. But do you really understand how God creates life? You could maybe explain it scientifically. Maybe you're an OBGYN and you've been to school. You read the books. You heard the lectures. You have seen the sonograms. But who can fathom how God puts a soul, a spirit, into a little swimming thing which grows arms and legs? 
You don't know how God creates life. You don't know where the wind will blow. So get busy. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed. At evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Day and night throw seed. Cast it upon the waters, here and there and everywhere. Don't wait for ideal circumstances. Why stand you gazing at the clouds? Go, the angel said. Why lick your finger and put it to the wind to see if it's a good time to give, if it's a good time to speak? If it's a good time to care, if it's a good time to sow. Now, Jesus used the language of Ecclesiastes 11 seeds and sowing and reaping for two different things one, for his sacrificial death, and two, for the spread of the gospel in this world. Jesus had presumably infinite metaphors, analogies, and word pictures at his disposal. And maybe as much as any other, he used these agricultural ones that we find in Ecclesiastes 11 to talk about his sacrificial death and the spread of the gospel in the world. He said of himself in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. You take a little seed, and if it's by itself, it's nothing. It's dead. It doesn't do anything. But if it goes into the ground, yes, that seed dies, but, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is what Jesus came to do. Not to be the little seed that could, but to go into the ground to die and to bear fruit. And by extension, he says this is also true of any would-be followers. He says in the very next verse of John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The principle is true of us too. If we want to keep our little seed, our little life, sure, you can have it. It does nothing and you're alone. But if you want to join Jesus in the ground and be resurrected with him, well then, that's life and life eternal. Jesus is not only the true seed, he's also the supreme sower. In Luke 13, he paints this picture that God has planted a tree in which the birds of the air, in picture, these are people, right? These represent people from all over, from far away, of all different kinds. God has planted a tree in which the birds of the air have come to nest and find shade. This is salvation. This is his mission. And he calls us to join him in his mission. He calls us to join him in the sowing and the reaping that he's already doing. In Mark 4, when he gave that parable of the four soils, it begins just, a farmer went out to sow. This is the kingdom. What's it like? A farmer went out to sow. 
in this farmer sowed seed all over the place. He did it indiscriminately, widely, almost carelessly. There's seed on rocky ground. There's seed on shallow ground. Some seed is getting picked up by birds. But, but some seed lands on this good ground that God has already tilled. And from that grew up a great harvest. Again, that's salvation. That's what we call the Great Commission. Every Christian is called to be a farmer who seeds. We just spread it all around. What happens after that is up to God. The difference is his. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul can say, Apollos planted, I watered, but God gave the increase. We don't know what will prosper. We don't know where he'll bring growth. It's God's doing. The wind blows where it wishes, and you don't see where it's going, only where it's been. But just because we don't know where God will bless and what God will prosper, we don't sit on our hands. We're not frozen in fear. We're not stalling because of the unknowns. No, we're busy. At least we should be. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, Preach the word in season and out of season. Again, agricultural terms. When it seems like it's the right time, plant and preach. And when it seems like it's not the right time, well, you just go ahead and you preach then too. Sunday after Sunday. This relates to preachers and it relates to those who hear them. In season and out of season. In sermons that seem like they're good or helpful, and those that don't. Keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And don't be discouraged. Not just in the listening to preaching, but in all things related to seeds and planting and reaping. This speaks to our giving, to our going, where the gospel is not yet named, or at least not as much as it is here. It relates to us sending those who will go, and it relates to us witnessing here in our own town. Ecclesiastes 11 may have had generosity primarily in mind when it talked about casting your bread and giving a portion and sowing your seed. But, but in the New Testament, these categories are enlarged to global, gospel, eternal, saving purposes. And it's now clear from Jesus and his apostles, we don't just help the poor. We also seek to save the lost. We lay down our lives. We offer up our words. In fact, this is wisdom according to Colossians. Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In Ecclesiastes, up to this point, the wise person, they're hardworking, they're humble, they know what they don't know. 
and they're happy in the home. And now, as we turn the page in Ecclesiastes 11, we also see that they're generous. Generous to cast seed. We're casting bread, even though we don't know when it will come back to us or how it will come back. When we cast bread, we're, we're, we're putting our neck out so that we might tell a non-Christian friend the gospel. This is why we write that check or commit to you know, a, a planned schedule of giving to the church and to missions. This is why we've sent two families from our church whom we love dearly to live in North Africa where there is only maybe one or two other Christians. The gospel isn't there, and it's got to get there. We've got to get seed there. I leave it up to you and the Spirit of God to decide what that means for you today to decide what you need to do in light of this passage, to decide what you need to change. It might be financial. You maybe should start giving if you aren't, or giving more, or giving beyond just a, a normal gift to, to give specifically to missions. Maybe the Lord is pulling on your heart just for you to begin to think about the possibility of moving to a place where there is less gospel than there is here. Or maybe you know you just need to be bold where you are. Maybe you'd say, I need to do better to, to move my relationships along toward the gospel, whatever that next step is. Maybe we've had a religious conversation, but we've never actually talked about Jesus Maybe we've talked about Jesus, but it, it fizzled because they like Jesus and they heard that Jesus likes little kids on his lap and they haven't yet heard that Jesus is also coming in fire and a sword. And they need to flee from the wrath that is to come. You might need to tell them that. You might need to just sort of lovingly turn the screws and say, we've talked about Jesus in theory, but what about you? What about you? What about today? We all could pray better and pray more than we do. May the Lord make us busy with our prayers, knowing that that's really important work for the work that we have and the harvest that we want. Or maybe you just need to keep on doing what you're doing. You're not perfect, but you're genuinely wise about some of these things. And you just need to hear from this passage today you can keep on keeping on even if you're tempted towards discouragement right now. Even if you don't see fruit. Even if it's been a season of dryness. Even if you, you take this seed, you wonder, why bother? I've given seed to that guy? Nothing. I tried to give seed to that guy. He told me to shut up. Why bother? Well, because there's so much you don't know. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know what he'll use. So get busy. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, we pray for those who are with us this morning who are on the other end of this mission. Those with us who need to be a recipient of this message that Jesus went into the ground and he died. That he might bear fruit, that he might pay for sins, our sins. We pray for those with us, Lord, who haven't yet come to know that Jesus and that salvation. May they be reminded today that there really are only two paths and two kinds of people. We pray, Lord, you give them eyes to see. We pray you'd bless. And we pray you'd bless us believers, Lord, in our mission, here and abroad. May we do it, Lord. May we give. May we declare for your glory, out of obedience, and with great hope and even joy. For your namesake, amen.